Welcome to Episode 9 of Impact Medicom's podcast series on precision medicine and oncology, the second episode in a three-part series on ovarian cancer. This episode, hosted by Impact Medicom's Sarah Doucette, features a debate on whether first-line maintenance therapy with PARP inhibitors can be considered a curative strategy in patients with advanced BRCA-mutated epithelial ovarian cancer. Participating in this debate are Dr. Tema May, surgical scientist at the University Health Network and professor at the University of Toronto, and Dr. James Bentley, professor and head of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Dalhousie University. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, listeners. I'm excited to kick off this episode of the Precision Medicine Podcast series, which will have a different format than usual, as today we are going to have a debate. So the topic of the debate is also a little different from our past episodes, which have largely focused on the importance of biomarkers to inform treatment decisions in cancer. So in this debate, we are focusing in on a specific targeted therapy, that is PARP inhibitors, uh, in an ovarian cancer population selected by the presence of BRCA12 mutations. So rather than just discussing what markers are important for decision making, we are really looking at how precision medicine in practice is impacting patient outcomes. So the question we'll be deb- debating today is can first line maintenance therapy with PARP inhibitors be considered a curative strategy in patients with advanced BRCA mutated epithelial ovarian cancer? So I'm happy to welcome gynecologic. Uh, oncologist Dr. Tama May, who will be arguing in favor of the curative intent designation, and Dr. Jim Bentley, who will be presenting the opposing side. So we're going to do this first by giving each of you the chance to introduce yourselves and present your sides of the argument, and then we'll have a chance for some closing remarks. So Dr. May, if you can start it off. Thank you very much, Sarah, for the introduction and for the invitation. Um, my name is Taima May. I'm a gynecologic oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center in Toronto, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Toronto. The focus of um, my clinical and uh, scientific research is in the field of ovarian cancer, so I am very excited to uh, be able to share some of this data with you. Ovarian cancer has gone through a lot of uh, uh, research and some changes over the last uh, decade, and there's a lot of new information that have come uh, to light with several trials. One of the sentinel trials that uh, we have had over the last few years is SOLO1 study, which was a randomized phase three clinical trial um, of patients with advanced ovarian cancer who were randomized in a two-to-one ratio to receive a PARP inhibitor after primary uh, treatment for ovarian cancer. The patient population in SOLO1 were individuals with stage three or four ovarian cancer. They could have had primary cytoreductive surgery followed by adjuvant chemotherapy, or they could have had neoadjuvant chemotherapy with interval cytoreductive surgery. Um, People also with stage four ovarian cancer were eligible. All patients had Um, to have a BRCA mutation, either germline mutation or a somatic mutation. Patients were randomized uh, following completion of all surgical and systemic chemotherapy to receive either placebo or uh, olaparib, which is a PARP inhibitor, at 300 milligrams twice daily in a ratio of two to one. Since then, the initial publication came to light, which showed significant benefit to survival in patients with BRCA mutation who were treated with maintenance olaparib. And since then, there was an updated analysis that was published in The Lancet looking at the longer-term progression-free survival after five years. 
So as a lot of us are aware, Olaparib was treated for two years, and the group who were treated with Olaparib as compared to the placebo had significantly better progression-free survival. So when we look at all comers, 60% of patients had uh, were disease-free at three years and 26% in the control arm. This is a significant gap. And in ovarian cancer, it is a disease that is very challenging to treat. And we have not seen such a gap in a very, very long time, not with impact of surgery and not with impact of chemotherapy. So this is one of the few new treatments that has significantly impacted survival. The updated data, five-year uh, follow-up data of SOLO1 was published uh, by Dr. Banerjee and team in The Lancet. And it did look at um, the five-year progression-free survival. And patients, even after stopping Olaparib at two years, the benefit in the Olaparib-treated group was still noticeable. So at five years, 48% of people were disease-free who were treated with Olaparib as compared to 21%. This is a very significant, it's a 27% difference, uh, which is remarkable. And then when you look at the subgroups of patients who we as oncologists would consider high risk versus low risk, the low risk population had even better survival. So patients who were treated with primary surgery who had complete cytoreduction reduction at the completion of surgery and had stage three disease where 56% of those individuals were disease-free at five years. This is very significant. We're talking about the majority of patients with advanced ovarian cancer who have not recurred at five years. This is a game changer. So I'm going to pass it on to Dr. Bentley. Thank you, Taima. Um, thank you for that uh, excellent uh, introduction. Um, I'm Jim Bentley. For those who don't know me, I'm a uh, professor in obstetrics and gynecology and currently the head of department in, at Dalhousie in Halifax and have been a gynecologic oncologist for some 22 years. So throughout my career, um, I have seen essentially stagnation in what we do in ovarian cancer. Uh, Carboplatin and Taxol came along when I was a resident, or oh, it was Cisplatin and Taxol initially, then we switched to Carboplatin and Taxol. And uh, we tried several different modalities in maintenance therapy that really haven't pushed the curve of survival much over these years. It is great to see the data that has been presented and, and time was introduced to us today. And it's great to see that we do have these wonderful advances in, in a subset of our patients. And I think what we have to bear in mind is what are the limitations of this trial and what are is the smaller set of patients that we're really dealing with here. So this is a set of patients that had a germline mutation in, in, in BRCA1 and 2. If you look at the data, there was only 1% of them that had had a somatic mutation. So we have to be careful how we sell that to our patients. And we don't know all of the data about what that really means. If they had, as, as in this population, population often will have, they will often have had another cancer. Um, and they weren't excluded if they had a breast cancer, but they had to be treated for early disease, not on therapy, and have had it three years in advance. So again, I don't see many patients who come through that are just finishing breast cancer therapy and then flipping over to having ovarian cancer therapy, but that does happen and they were excluded. So we had, we had that sort of, that tenant in it thrown in there. This is a therapeutic option and we are then trying to um, improve the overall outcome 
In this trial, we're talking usually about progression-free survival. And when we're looking at the actual overall survival, it's, we have to tease that out and, and see where we are. And, and I would say, yeah, that is, it is great. I mean, we, if you actually look at the overall survival at five years, you may actually be up to 70% plus of people who are, have overall survival. Of about 25% of them are still on some form of, um, uh, you know, some sort of treatment or, or, or are having some recurrences at that time, but they have been through the elaborate setting. What we don't know for these patients is whether they're getting a PARP inhibitor twice. Uh, what are the, all of those things? So it's you know we, it's very difficult to argue against this data that says that survival is increased overall, or, or to say that progression-free survival is increased overall. But I, I just wonder about where we are, what we are promising our patients and subjecting them to by by. by if I sort of, by saying to them, when I initially see a patient who has a BRCA mutation, I can cure you of this cancer. And are we making false promises? Because we need to avoid, you know, one of the first things we do as a physician, we first do no harm. You know, we, we, we but, and, and when we give patients therapy, it does come with harm. We know that alaparib has the risk of nausea that is significant. It has the, the risk of myelosuppression and it has the risk about 1% or 1% to 2% of an acute myeloid leukemia. So there is all of those risks that are involved. And so it isn't a simple panacea. And I believe in the trials, only 50% of the patients who are on the Alaparib arm finished all of their therapy. So I think we have five years of data. That is amazing. Is five years long enough to tell somebody that they are cured? If you are 40 when you are diagnosed with your ovarian cancer, you don't, five years doesn't mean as much as if you're 70, 65, 70 when you're ovarian cancer. These are people that have a BRC mutation. They may actually be younger. And to say I can cure them with five years of data is a little bit much. You know, if we are saying that we can cure 50% of our patients, which may, may be the case in this small subset of patients, what in their minds coming into this is a 50% cure rate mean? only 50%, you can give me a 50% chance. When we explain to other patients in oncology that they have a 50-50 survival, that's pretty doom and gloom. And I know this is, this is a great advance, but I think we have to temper this with this is the first step forward in the precision medicine for these patients and just be careful about how we, how we explain that to our patients and don't uh, really uh, cause too much excitement. This also, this is a study. Study patients tend to be younger. They tend to be more motivated. They don't represent the general population. And when we extrapolate data to the general population, they don't do as well. I had a conversation with a BRCA patient this morning, this very morning, and she's third line therapy, failing things and taking her off therapy. And, and I'd had a very optimistic conversation with her two years ago when I found out she had a BRCA mutation. And then that just brought it home to me that we have to be cautious about how we have these conversations with people and, 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 and have some humility about how we do this because we, 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 uh, we are not promising everything. So I, I think um, Jim put the um, challenges very eloquently. I agree that um, the wording is important. We often in ovarian cancer and in many other challenging cancers, we use the word remission rather than cure. And I 
think it is important to be honest and to have the data available in a very clear way. This is one study, but there are multiple other trials that have looked at different factors. And when you put everything together, you start to understand that there is a subgroup of patient that has a different tumor biology where they actually do really well. Um, and of course, there would be, unfortunately, a group that we still need to work on a little bit more and understand the tumor biology better and figure out better targeted therapies. But there is a group that qualifies for primary cytoreductive surgery, and we have shown in multiple trials that the outcomes, if patients have complete cytoreduction, is better than if they have residual disease or suboptimal cytoreduction. Survival is clearly linked to residual disease. So surgical complexity and comprehension in surgery is critical to survival in those patients. And whether it is the surgical effort or whether it is tumor biology that lends... Yeah, because we know, I mean, there's that data that says that the BRCA patient is more de debulkable. I think you've got... Correct. We just published that actually yeah, in the yeah. Gynae Oncology Journal uh, just this month. So we have looked at our patients who have a BRCA mutation, somatic or germline, and a lot of them had a somatic mutation and patients who didn't. Our, the first author was our fellow, Dr. Rachel Kim, and we found that patients who have a BRCA mutation are more likely to have complete cell reduction and hence better survival. So it's a combination. And I agree, the tumor biology lends itself to primary surgery. But we as surgeons have to identify those patients at diagnosis and offer them primary cytoreductive surgery because we know that gives them better survival. When we select patients that will be appropriate for primary surgery, who hopefully will have a BRCA mutation, who might benefit from Olaparib, that subgroup of patient has a possibility of very delayed recurrence or a cure. And I think we have to start to feel confident in ovarian cancer to use that word. So, so do you think, just to, to get to that point about, you know, could we identify people before surgery who have a BRCA mutation? So the only ones we are lucky enough to do that are really those that have a strong family history. Or, yes. We have no way of doing a rapid BRCA test that comes back in two days. Yeah. Not in two days, but we can get um, somatic BRCA testing if you have a lab yeah. at your institution within two weeks, which often is if you have a biopsy, a diagnosis, and then with, it, with imaging, we can get the results within two weeks. But so, in so, addition, so, then, so yeah. then you're saying that if it's somatic, and this trial did not, these trials we're discussing really did not, I'm being, trying to be the devil's advocate here, but these trials did not discuss there was only 1% of somatic mutations within that. So, you know, if you've got a tumor mutation, um, it may well be that most of those are germline mutations. We just don't know that yet. True. They may not have a germline mutation, but even our own study, um, which we just talked about, looked at somatic mutation and they had equivalent survival to patients who had germline mutation. So whether the driver is germline or somatic, the outcome is the same. Yeah. You know that the response to... Um, the the uh, elaborate will be similar. Yeah, I think another important point, Jim, is when we see patients with ovarian cancer, if they are resectable, we should prioritize primary cytoreductive surgery or the postinia adjuvant because that would put them in the lower risk group if they are BRCA mutation. If they do not have a BRCA mutation, they will still benefit from having complete surgical cytoreduction up front. Yeah. Do you, in your group of these patients, you see more of these than I do, I think, 
do you do intrapreneal chemotherapy on these at all? Is, does that come into the mix in, in, in this and then following that with a lap rib? Um, that is a brilliant question. So obviously in solo one, they didn't do intraperitoneal, they did intravenous chemotherapy. At our institution, we still do the original GOG-172 protocol with mm-hmm. cisplatin and taxol. Yeah. And the survival rates we see are um, very similar to solo one. Without so, a lap rib? With a lap rib. Correct. And even without a lap rib, we looked at, we published a paper, um, a retrospective Canadian cohort study looking at over 850 patients with with advanced stage 3 CN4 ovarian cancer across four major cancer centers in Canada Mm -hmm. and looked at survival based on surgical outcomes and based on primary surgery versus neoadjuvant. And the survival, again, was highest primary surgery. And this is our Canadian population. So that's the primary surgery, but then what about the IP? And IP patients had best outcomes. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know how we put that in the mix. That's, you know, that's that's part of that complication about where we go with that. In the trials, they used myriad testing. Yes. For germline mutations. We don't know what they are really doing with that because it's a proprietary test and it's not open source or anything like that. Do we have full confidence that our in-house testing that we do in most of our Canadian centres is compatible with that and not missing things? And That's a good question. I think HRD testing is an important component. And to date, we don't have access to HRD testing. Um, At least we don't in Toronto, unless it's self-paid by the patient. Um, But even the HRD is is an even bigger group. But but for the group of patients we're talking about now, are the germline testing, are they testing exactly the same mutations in the myriad testing to get BRCA positive that we would test. I would hope they are. I would hope the yeah. panels are exactly the same. But um, we want to make sure we don't miss people. As, as the GOC said, we need to leave no woman left behind. I mean, we need to make sure we include all the women in the testing for this and, and go forward with that. I agree. Validation of local lab testing of the BRCA mutations should, should be validated. And I think our lab at least is validated and it is equivalent in the BRCA testing. Yeah. Yeah. But to date, we don't have access to non-BRCA HRD testing locally. So we're arguing around the same side of the uh, the question. We're arguing about terminology. I mean, we have data for five years. Are we ever going to get data for longer in these patients? Because I would bet, you know, if these patients that were on a lap rib for two years, and then these are the patients that have self-selected, and that's in that 70 percent that have not got or still alive at the five-year point or whatever whatever it is there's a huge group of women in that group in that in that set are they going to get a second PARP inhibitor are they you know you know and there's yeah. lots of unanswered questions there but I think another important group the high-risk group so the stage four patients the neoadjuvant patients patients who had residual disease up front still had a significant benefit with a hazard ratio of 0.35 yeah which is very significant Clinically, at five years, 40% of people hadn't recurred. So if you imagine your patient was stage four, 42% to not have a recurrence at five years. And so they have had disease-free five years, uh, disease-free interval, which is clinically significant. Quality of life, of course, would be very good. And they were on maintenance therapy for two years. So those patients would have been off maintenance therapy for three years with good quality of life, minimal side effects, and disease-free. I think this is significant. This is really significant. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not doubting that. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I think. Uh, I mean, I think 
Yeah, I agree. I think this is a very exciting paper. It's it's statistically significant and also clinically very significant. And like Jim said, it's changing our discussions with the patients in practice. The word cure can be used. I use it later on. Up front, we are all hesitant because like Jim said with his patient today, it is hard to predict who those self-select patients are going to be, but they exist and they will be in our practices. Yeah. And, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, my, my conclusion would be, uh, I think, I think we, I was going to say, Tamer, this may <laughs> <laughs> be the right thing to say, but we just have to be very careful about how we say the word cure to our patients and, and uh, prolonged survival. And we are out to five years and it may uh, translate to even, even longer survival. Well said, Dr. Bentley. I echo that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yes, I thank you. But I both just came around to kind of a middle point. And we can all agree that, first of all, BRCA testing is very important to identify those patients. They have clearly a different biology, different prognosis, and that the solo one data was definitely some exceptional data and is good news for the patients, whether or not it's defined as curative or not, I think. And uh, it certainly can be curative, um, but it, it's it's important to uh, be kind of cautious or careful how you discuss it with the patient. Um, so I, if it, I don't know if any of you have anything else to add. I think yeah, that's a really good summary, Sarah. We yeah. agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't think I want to decide who won this debate or not, but uh, as we post, post it on social media, we can let people comment on uh, what they think. But thank you both so much for uh, participating. It was a really great discussion um, and we'll hope to have you on again uh, soon. So thanks. Thank, thank you. you. This is very exciting and hopefully more data will come out and yeah. more promise in ovarian cancer research. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, thanks. Thank you.